appreciated the songs this morning. I especially um, was, was noticing the fact that it wasn't until the last song that we really had something that was upbeat, and that was intentional. Because we need to always recognize that the cost of faith that was paid by Christ is an infinite price that we receive freely. And the message this morning is going to be along those lines, that the cost of faith that we sometimes have to put forth pales in comparison to the price that Christ paid so that we could have the free gift of eternal life with Jesus in his kingdom. Let's always remember that. Let me pray as we begin this message. Father, we sing about how you give and take away and our, that our hearts will truly say, blessed be your name. And it's easy to sing when the sun's shining down on us, but not so easy when the darkness closes in. In the spirit, the prophet Isaiah said, you, O Lord, form the light and create darkness. You make well-being and create calamity. You are the Lord who does all these things. As we come to your word this morning, Father, I pray that your spirit will help us to see that in all your ways there is perfection, that all your plans serve to display your glory in the face of your son, Jesus. Father, open our hearts to your loving kindness. I pray you would use my words to give comfort, confidence, and instruction, not only to my heart, but to the hearts of your people gathered today. Father, we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. The 19th century Scottish writer, Robert Louis Stevenson, the author of Treasure Island and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, once wrote in his journal, Wonder of wonders, I have been to church today and I am not depressed. Now, Stevenson describes the frustration he felt with the Bible when it's preached as a parade of moral stories instead of the greatest rescue mission that's ever occurred in history. Dorothy Sayers, a 20th century English writer and poet, understood Stevenson's complaint when she said this, at the heart of the Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of men and women. The dogma is the drama, but the church has hidden the drama behind a curtain of moralistic preaching on Sunday that is powerless to change people's lives. The problem remains true today. We tell our children to dare to be a Daniel as they grow. And as they get older, we tell them to be like David and slay the Goliaths of sin in their lives. And as adults, we're instructed regularly to live the gospel through the good works and the smiles we share. So from cradle to grave, we cut the greatest story ever told into digestible bits without ever explaining who we are in Christ, why we want to live that way, and what to do when the cost of faith increases around us. Ed Stetzer, he's the director of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. He puts it this way. We often teach the Bible as one morality tale after another. 
We want people to learn how to live well, so we draw from the Bible stories of people who did the right or the wrong thing. And as a result, we miss the transcendent wonder of a God who walked on earth, showed us what God intended for us to be in Jesus Christ, who then went to the cross to earn a place in God's eternal city for which all of the great characters of the Bible longed to see. Abraham did what? He looked for a city whose foundation and builder was God. And that's what we should see on Sunday morning is the telos, the, the, the end of all that all this leads to. But when we turn the whole thing into a moral message with little eternal significance, we sell our Savior short. The gospel is what desperately lonely people want to hear. The gospel is the message of eternal significance. And the gospel is the only message Christ has given his church to proclaim. Today, as we come uh, continue in our series on Joseph, we come to one of the most popular Bible stories to be made into a morality tale. It's the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And while it does advise us to flee temptation of all types, it's neither the main point nor the most important point in this story. Instead, it's about God's sovereign power to advance his promise of a redeemer at a critical point in history, and the lesson for all of God's people to know from this is that whatever trials we face as followers of Jesus Christ, God is there with us. I've entitled this message, The Cost of Faith. And the one big idea is this. In the brightest of blessings, in the darkest of struggles, God is always with us his people. That's the one big idea. It's on the top of your of your handout. And I remind you of this because Satan's favorite question to us is what is the cost? What is the cost to you if you stand for Christ? right now? It's his favorite question. How do we handle the cost of faith? By knowing that God is with his people in the brightest of blessings and the darkest of times. So that's the one big idea. I invite you to stand as I read a portion of our text. It's from Genesis 39. I'll give you a second to open your Bible there. That's long enough. Sword drills. Genesis 39. I'll begin in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph 
found favor in his sight and attended him, and he, that's Potiphar, made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he, Potiphar, had. From the time that he made him overseer of his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Please be seated. The story unfolds in three scenes. First, Joseph in Potiphar's house. Second, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And third, Joseph in Potiphar's prison. So we'll follow Joseph in his descent from Jacob's favorite son in the promised land to a lowly field slave in Egypt, then his rise in prominence in a rich man's house only to descend again into an Egyptian dungeon. And in the end, we'll see how this story prepares us to wait patiently and confidently through the ups and downs that we experience in life. God is shaping us into the image of his son because the image of Christ is what God intended his image bearers to be. Sin has marred that image. Christ was the example of that image. It is Christ and his glorified image that one day we will share. We will not be God, but we will be God's children in God's kingdom for all of eternity, for God's glory, and for our infinite joy forever. That's the goal. So Joseph's journey in Potiphar's house, then, is an example for us in some way. Let me, let's unpack this a little bit. Let's begin with Joseph's journey to Potiphar's house. That began back in chapter 37 when we were introduced to Jacob and his 12 sons. Joseph was his favorite, and because of the dreams that God gave to Joseph, which he shared with his mother and father and his brothers, because those dreams indicated that Joseph was going to be the one through whom the precious Abrahamic promise would would continue, his brothers hated him. Their hatred grew, as we saw back in chapter 37, into a murderous plot that threw him in a pit, and only by God's providence, a passing caravan of Ishmaelite traders came along, and Judah, his older brother, saw an opportunity for profit. They sold Joseph to the traders, and in our text today, we find out that the traders sold Joseph to an Egyptian man named Potiphar, described as the captain of the guard. So put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He was a young man. He was of good character, obedient in all things to his father. God had shown him in dreams that he would carry on the Abrahamic blessing. And he lived accordingly. He lived a life of solid character. He lived a life of obedience to his heavenly and to his earthly father. 
but everything crumbled when he was carted off to Egypt. Now he finds himself in rags, a field slave in Egypt, dusty Egypt. His life literally hangs in the balance. He's an alien alone in a foreign country. It's a very tenuous position. He's hanging on by his fingernails here. Why would God do this to him? Think of Joseph Christ. God, where are you? Why have you done this? Why have you left me? But had God abandoned him? Well, let's look at that. In our English translation, the capitalized word, it's usually a large cap and small cap, the capitalized word Lord is a translation from the Hebrew of Yahweh. Yahweh is the name God revealed was his name to Moses later at the burning bush. Yahweh occurs five times in these opening verses. In verse 2, Yahweh was with Joseph. Verse 3, Yahweh was with him, and Yahweh caused all Joseph did to succeed. Verse 5, Yahweh blessed Potiphar's house, and the blessing of Yahweh was on all Potiphar had in the house and the field. By God's power, Joseph is moved from a field slave to be the top manager in Potiphar's house and over his land. land. God has never left Joseph. He has been there all along. And now the blessing continues to flow from God through Joseph and now into this current situation. God was with Joseph when his brothers threw him in a waterless pit in the desert. God was with Joseph when the Ishmaelite uh, uh, caravan dragged him away. God was with Joseph now in Egypt, and God is blessing Joseph and this man Potiphar through Joseph. But there's one thing to notice in these opening verses. It's never attributed to Joseph that these blessings come to Potiphar and his land. Yahweh is working through him for a specific purpose, and that is our first Fill in. Blessing Potiphar through Joseph begins to fulfill God's promise to make Abraham a blessing to all people. Blessing Potiphar through Joseph is the start of God's promise to make Abraham a blessing to all people. Back in Genesis 12.3, God promised Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, his name was Abram at that time, that in him, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And when we unpacked that little sentence some time ago in our Genesis series, what we found was that this was the blessing that through Abraham somehow a redeemer would come who would bless the entire scope of humanity. All the families of the earth would be blessed. Joseph's success in Potiphar's house is the initial fulfillment of this Abrahamic 
promise. Through Joseph, God's blessing begins to flow to a Gentile family as the, as the Abrahamic blessing begins to flow. And it will continue to flow throughout the Old Testament until it reaches its zenith with the birth of Jesus Christ. And then it continues on that high point throughout Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And the Abrahamic blessing continues to flow to the Gentiles today. How many people here are Jewish? How many people here have been given saving faith? I guess the blessing to Abraham is flowing to all people, isn't it? We are the living proof of this, and it begins here. Paul explains it this way in Galatians 3, 8 and following. He says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, who is the Christ. Do you see the crimson thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation through the Bible? It's one consistent story of God's power to rescue his beloved creation from sin and death. See it here that the blessing begins in Potiphar's house. God's promise and seeing how these ancient roots of the ancient, of the Abrahamic promise grew helped Israel through their struggles. They were reading this as they were moving through the wilderness after being freed from slavery in Egypt. So it explained to them how their ancestors came to be in Egypt. But it also explained to, him, to them how God's blessing was continuing to flow. When they left Egypt, thousands of Egyptians went with them. They could see the Abrahamic blessing beginning to flow. When they saw the ancient roots of this blessing, they were able to stand strong in faith through their struggles, and their struggles were immense into the promised land. Think of the time of the judges, the wars under Joshua, then the great, the great kings, and then the failure of the great kings, and then the dividing of the nation. Finally, the land vomits them out, and they're in exile in Babylon, and the northern tribes are completely wiped out. What kind of encouragement did they need? They needed to know that in Joseph's story, they saw the roots of the Abrahamic promise was still with them. Think of our lives in the 21st century. Do we need to know that the Abrahamic promise is still with us? Absolutely. We need to know it just as desperately as the Israelites knew it. And our neighbors need to know it too. God's faithfulness in his promises to Abraham. So when we read our Bibles, we need to see that these promises advance steadily from the garden to Abraham, to Joseph in the Potiphar's house, to Israel, and finally to the cross where Christ completes the promise to bring a blessing of Abraham to the whole world. Reading and meditating in our Bibles is what gives us the strength to stand. Well, let's look at the next scene then. It's seen, the scene then shifts from Joseph and Potiphar's house to Joseph and Potiphar's wife. 
And here we learn that not everyone is pleased with Joseph. Look with me at verse 6 and following. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? One other person in Scripture is defined with these two adjectives in form and uh, Joseph was handsome. In form and appearance. One other person is described that way. Rachel, Joseph's mother. Now we see why Joseph was probably Jacob's favorite, because he looked like his mother. He was handsome in form and appearance. And it caught the wife, it caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. Now her proposition, lie with me, is both both a lustful demand and a power play. It's not a request. It's a command. Lie with me. You are the slave. I am the master's wife. You do what I say. This is not a request. This is an order. Joseph refused, and he gave her three reasons. First, he says, my master has placed trust in me. I can't betray that trust. Second, everything in house and field is under my master. I have the same authority as my master in all things except for you, his wife. How could I ever betray that trust? And then finally he says, to lie with you would be a sin against my God, who is blessing us all. It's this third reason that's most important. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It's the first ordinance that occurs in the Bible. It's a creation ordinance because it is a picture of how God relates to his beloved so, this is why idolatry is always called adultery in the Bible. So, adultery isn't just a moral issue. It's not just a breach of a promise between two people. It's an offense against God and the means by which he relates to his creatures. And Joseph understands this, which is why he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So, of course, uh, Potiphar's wife understands. 
she's relentless day in, day out. She keeps after Joseph, trying to wear him down. Joseph keeps standing firm, and then a day comes. The opportunity presents itself, and she strikes. Verse 11. One day when he, Joseph, went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. It came down to Joseph having to tear himself out of her grasp and run. Now, it seems like normally there were other servants in the house, but on this day, uh, it was not so. So Potiphar's wife seized the moment and grabbed Joseph. He ran from the house, but in doing so, he has compromised this woman who now must explain why she has Joseph's garment in her hand and there's no Joseph. Verse 14, she begins to shrewdly start to put the blame first directly on Joseph, but actually indirectly upon her husband. She gathers all the household staff, and she says, see, he, that's my husband, has brought among us a Hebrew man to laugh at us. He came into me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Now, since no one was in the house, none of these servants could either confirm or deny her claim. But duty-bound, they must affirm her account of the story at the loss of life, perhaps, if they try to say something different. So she, she, her words, the Hebrew was brought in to laugh at us. It paints Joseph as a promiscuous man who makes sex a sport. And what she's saying here is this. My husband has brought a player into our house. Now the garment beside her, it's the author's uh, bit of irony because he notes here that Joseph refused to lie with her, so she lies with his garment to accuse him of what he refused to do. And when Potiphar arrives home, she tells him the same story, but with a subtle change. In verse 14, she said, my husband has brought a Hebrew man into our house to laugh at us. Now here in verse 17, she calls Joseph a Hebrew ivid, Hebrew for slave. My husband brought a Hebrew slave into our house to cause dissent and sexual impurity. She wants to make sure everyone knows that she's the victim. So she says this to her husband. This is the way your slave treated me. Now Potiphar, sensing that indirectly she's laying the responsibility at his feet as well, his anger is enraged, it says in the text. And in verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, in Genesis 38, we looked at Judah's story, and we learned that there are critical crossroads that we come to in our, in our lives where we face moral choices. 
here in chapter 39, in contrast to Judah, Joseph's right choice at the critical crossroad seems to bring disaster. In Psalm 105.18, it tells us what happened to Joseph. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Joseph's not just confined to an ordinary jail. He's locked in the king's dungeon near the royal palace, the place for political prisoners. And this bit of information will become significant, but let's pause here for a second uh, for our next fill-in. Godly faithfulness that brings worldly disaster can hide but never prevent divine grace. We stand for Christ and suffer the consequences, the cost of faith. That pressure can hide, but it can never prevent divine grace. Joseph's stand for righteousness seems to backfire. His faith is costly. Giving in to her would increase not only Joseph's authority in the house and the land, but his bank accounts as well. But he chose to be faithful to God and to his master. His reward? To be falsely accused, publicly shamed, scorned by his master, and finally clapped in the iron chains of a dungeon cell. What a what a disaster this seems to be. Or maybe you've made a stand for Christ and it hasn't worked out like you had hoped. I have several stories of that. I won't share them with you, but I know that you have your own story of, of making a stand for Christ and it just doesn't seem to work out like you had hoped. But a key lesson that Joseph's story reveals is this, is what we do for Christ always has an impact, even if we don't see it in our life. I always want to go to that song where the guy says, I dreamed I went to heaven, you were there with me. We walked along on uh, streets of gold beside the crystal sea, and suddenly someone called your name. It was the young boy. I was smiling as you came. He said, friend, you may not know me now, but then again, just wait. You used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. And every day you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you said that prayer, Jesus clapped. When we stand for Christ, it may be costly, but it has eternal significance. The worldly disaster may hide it, but it can never prevent divine grace. And that's what we find with now with Joseph, that Joseph's right choice has put him in the exact place where God wants him to be. Where God wants him to be. Now, spoiler alert, in Potiphar's prison, God is going to use Joseph in that prison to prevent 
the extinction of Abraham's growing number of descendants hundreds of miles away in Canaan, like the blessing through Joseph in Potiphar's house, God will continue to bring the blessing through Joseph in Potiphar's prison. And we'll see, we see this in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, Yahweh made it succeed. Now, a foreign slave accused of raping an Egyptian woman would be immediately executed. But Potiphar might have thought his wife could be lying. In verse 1, we're told that Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, strangely... Joseph has ended up in the king's royal prison over which Potiphar has authority. So the prison, the, the, the prison, the guy in charge of the prison works for Potiphar. And notice this, the description of Joseph in prison is almost identical to the description of Joseph in Potiphar's house. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man in Potiphar's house. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in sight of the keeper of the prison. Back in verse 4, it says, Potiphar made him overseer of his house and in charge of all he had. The prison, verse 22, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And in this way, you see, the stage is being set for what God is going to do next as his redemptive work continues through Joseph. But we have to wait till next time. In the remaining moments, I want to explain why there's more to this story than a moral lesson about temptation. I mentioned that we need to always consider how Israel would have understood these events because the Old Testament was written to them and for us, okay? So how would they have understood these events when they faced slavery in Egypt, later in the Promised Land, later still in, ex in exile? They would have seen how God used all the freely made human choices, freely made human choices. This is not determinism. This is autonomy of our, our, our human spirit. God uses our freely made human choices, both good and bad, to preserve and prosper Egypt or Israel at that time in the hostile world of the ancient Near East. And that same lesson is for us today in the church age. Because he's always been faithful to his promises, God will continue to be faithful to his promises.
this eternal truth of God's presence with his people in all circumstances then becomes our final filling. God is never closer to us than when he seems to be far away. He's never closer than when we think he's far away. I think we know this is true. When, when we're enjoying God's blessing, he can seem distant because we're, we're lulled with the false belief that all of our success is due to our hard work, our good character, our luck. And when we're suffering, God feels far away for the same reason because the fragile nature of our bodies and our pain becomes foremost in our minds. That's the, the, that's the issue with chronic illness. And we, we see and we pray for people because chronic illness wears them down and it wears all of them around, all of those who are around them down too. So in both cases, we are limited in our vision by seeing only what is physical, by seeing only the material world around us. But we know that there is a spiritual realm as well. We know that because the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts, and it has given us eyes and ears not only to understand this as God's word to us, but also of God's reality in which we live. It's a physical, spiritual reality. So God seems far away when we're successful because we only see the result of our hard work. And God seems far away when we're suffering because we only see the suffering that we're going through. We seldom look beyond this to see the greater truth. That's the telos I talked about. That's the final end of all of us who are God's children. We need to keep our eyes fixed there so that regardless of whether we're getting his blessing or we're getting the, the problems that come with being with living in a fallen world with fragile bodies, we need to be able to look beyond that and see the, the hope of glory and even the joy and the suffering that we have because we know that in the end we will be with God forever. So a better message from this story is the faithfulness of God to be with us in the brightest of blessings and the darkest of struggles. Just like Israel long ago, we gain comfort by knowing how God's sovereign power works in our world. He controls all things for his purposes. All things. I was actually quite surprised when Rob came up and said, well, you know, this verse just came to me because I wrote it down here this morning before I came to church. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. The amazing as this is about God's sovereign control over all things, there's something more that when we see it lifts our eyes even further toward heaven and the beauty of Christ and the glory that we will see there. So let me explain. You see, when Joseph returned to the promised land, back in chapter 32, he bought land in Canaan, the promised land, but he built a house outside the promised land in a city called Sukkoth. So J Jacob had one foot in the promised land and one foot in the world. 
Now the next generation, his son, they had mostly both feet in the world. The, 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 the dreams that God gave to Joseph recorded in chapter 37 meant that the Abrahamic blessing would go through Joseph and his brothers hated him for that because their feet were firmly planted in the world. They despised God's promise. It was only God's hand of providence that prevented them from killing Joseph. And when Jacob could not be comforted over the loss of his favorite son, the family of the promise began to unravel. Judah left the promised land in disgust. He married a Canaanite woman, and we know what happened with him. Who would go next? Well, probably Reuben. He'd lost his standing with his father. Simeon and Levi, they'd murdered an entire town. Dan and the others, pretty much clueless. So it wouldn't be long before the entire family crumbled and the Abrahamic blessing would be lost. But God, don't you love those two words? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me in Christ Jesus has made me alive. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages the glory of God will be celebrated by us all forever. But God, he preserved the line of Jesus at this critical time. So Joseph's story points us to Christ. Joseph understood his father was concerned for his brothers, and he shared that concern. He obediently left the safety of his father's house to seek them in the wilderness. And when he found them, they despised and rejected him and would have killed him if God had not intervened. And in the coming chapters, we see God raise Joseph to a position where he can and will save his people. But these are shadows of redemption, and they stretch down through time when they finally fall upon Jesus. He's the beloved son of the father who left to seek and save the lost. He came to his own. They rejected him. And when they moved to kill him, God did not intervene. Instead, Jesus willingly gave his life. Where did he say, I lay my, set my life down and I pick it up again? Because he is the source of life. He willingly gave his life to save his people, which was what he and the Father had planned in eternity past to display their glory in time and space and history. Joseph saved God's people from starvation. Jesus saved and is continuing to save God's people, not from starvation, but from sin and death. Joseph provided food that saved his family's life, but they eventually died. But Jesus is the bread of heaven that has come down to us to give us eternal life. So we find comfort in knowing that God is always with us in blessings and in trials. But the even the greater comfort is knowing that as we live to honor God, that one day the one to whom Joseph pointed will complete the work of molding and shaping us into the image of Christ, which is what the Father intends for us to be, sinless, perfected, and filled with eternal joy in his presence. 
So the gospel theme is the great theme of Joseph's story. And to paraphrase uh, Robert, Robert Louis Stevenson, it's, it's when we see this in, in Joseph's stories that we can then say, wonder of wonders, I've been to church today and I'm overjoyed because I heard how God is working all things for good for all who love him because he first loved us. That's Genesis 30. Let's pray.